0: Welcome to The Real Triathlon Podcast. I'm your host, Garek Lowen, here with Nicholas Chase and Jackson Lund. Welcome back to The Real Triathlon Podcast. So much has happened since the last time the three of us got together and recorded. Let's start with the most pressing of, uh, I don't want to say issues, but... You guys ripped an incredible race at St. George. Super proud of both of you guys. Let's kind of hear the lowdown on that. Jack, you want to start, man?
1: I shall. Yeah. Um, it was it was a freaking awesome day. Of course, it was just uh, you always expect a great field to show up in St. George, but this time around, it was even more competitive than it has been in the past, just because of the fact that it's going to be worlds this year in St. George. So everybody's showing up to preview it and see what it's like and what they got to do better for next time. So, um, pretty stellar field and, and, uh, you know, just had our work cut out for us. So the swim was, as you'd expect, it was pretty, pretty good pace. There was definitely some really fast swimmers up there and, um, it was a in water start, like kind of waist deep and it was, pretty nuts because the boys that they set out for like to start between was probably only, I don't know. What would you say, Nick? Like 15 meters wide.
2: Yeah. Ben Canute had to physically move it. Cause he was like, no way. There's 60 of us. This is not cool.
1: Yeah. There was way too many. De- there was, I think there was more than 60. It was just ridiculous. And so guys were piling up all on the left side. There was like three deep on some parts from before the start. It was nuts. But I was able to get some clean water right away and swim well and um, jumped on feet and just freaking hung on for dear life and uh, was with that lead group for quite a while. Unfortunately, kind of started losing touch towards the second half and uh, ended up a little bit down, about 40 seconds behind the the leader. But it was still a great swim for me, and I was able to really bridge up early in the bike and get right in that group um, and just kind of hang on with all the, like, crazy, you know, variability for for a 70.3 race when it's hilly, there's just so much variability and uh felt strong. And and uh, then of course Nick and company starts coming through and they caught us what was that about halfway Nick that you guys rolled into our group?
2: Yeah, it was it was uh I had to jump on the old Sam Long Dritts and Lionel train there just to catch up. Yeah. So
1: those guys came in and then we just had one giant pack. Rudy Berg and Magnus Ditlev were off the front and uh, Snow Canyon broke things up a little bit and over the top I was kind of the first guy not to quite make that front group. Um, unfortunately I launched a bottle on the bike at about 30k so had to really had to grab some some calories at the top of that hill and uh, kind of cost me that spot there but that's on me I just needed to be a little further up and nick and i and who was it uh costas and a couple dudes back of guard sort of formed like a group just behind the lionel and sam long group 20 30 seconds back um coming into transition there and that's where shit just started going nuts there's like two guys in the penalty box like costas had like screamed past our group all the way to the front of the race and then like had to serve a penalty and then didn't even run And then he decided not to run. I don't know why. Um, But anyway, he did that. So then uh, started the run felt not bad, like pretty solid, obviously. And just kind of worked my way. And I saw I I immediately caught Dreitz and a couple others. And then I saw uh, Goodwin coming back to me and he he came back at like 5k or something. And then I just kind of hung on and I tried and I saw Rudy coming back to me and it just, you know, Kind of ran out of real estate there, but was able to come through with a really solid fifth place um, after BeccaGuard got DQ'd for not serving his penalty. So, freaking best. I mean, I was only 245 ish behind the win. And I know with a little bit more specific prep and not racing so much right before, I'll be able to do a little better at Worlds.
0: Yeah, dude, that was awesome. Do we have the lowdown on what happened with uh, BeccaGuard there?
2: A little <laughs> running. Um... Uh, so I heard some insider knowledge too today from a so a source that I can't disclose, but it rhymes with Schmody Schmiels. Um, <laughs> someone mentioned that on the coverage that you couldn't see it, but Daniel actually cramped and locked up. And that could have been a reason why he slowed down and pulled out anyways, or he used that, you know, that was another opportunity for him to pull out of the race, but maybe he would not have won. Um, if he wasn't dq'd given the cramp situation um so yeah we'll see Um, do we know like with the dq if he
0: knew he was dq'd or what happened um, i had heard that he went to the penalty box and they said no you don't have a penalty and then he kept going
2: i heard that but he also in his race recap mentioned that he knew he had one, but he didn't agree with it. So I, I don't know if that was also part of the race recap that he they told him at the tent he didn't also have one. I don't know. Mm-hmm. All I know is it's like the third race in the past couple of months where someone's continued to race on, with a DQ. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, continued to race with a penalty and then a DQ because they didn't serve it. But there's not really any repercussions yet, and USAT has yet to really address it. So I think that this is going to be something they have to get on top of or at least provide some guidance because it's it can mess with the race because let's say third place is technically pushed into fourth place because the real third place is DQ'd, but they're still getting camera time. They still got a lead biker. They're still impacting the race, and then they're oh, just yeah. DQ'd. So it's just not really copacetic with it, with like the fairness of the race, but I understand mistakes can be made, so I'm not saying Daniel did it on purpose because I, I just don't know.
0: Yeah. Nick, how was your day, man? You had a stellar bike. That was crazy.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, some reason my swims have been quite shit in the last three races. Um, And I think figured out why I have made some rookie moves and actually wore my sleeves up. And, you know, I love feeling the shoulder mobility and sleeves up in my tri suit that is. And I guess I didn't do that the past years, but I convinced myself I did. But looking back on all my swims when I was like top five out of the water, I'd had sleeveless or I'd put my sleeves on after the swim. So that's something I'll fix for the next race. And hopefully I'll get my nose up there where I feel like I belong in the swim. Um, so yeah, I had to, I think 45 seconds off Jack even, and then that means you've got like 30 minutes of biking on your own to bring back 40 seconds. Once they're all in a group, it was brutal. I think I rode 320 something Watts for the first 30 minutes or so just to catch up. Um, but it was really good. The new factor bike, honestly, like I knew it was going to be super fast. Just it's the first time I've really had everything dialed in with you know full-on Shram red, oversized pulley, running a one-by-setup, and also like made us my own speed chain with wax. Um, I know my position super fast, and the Rudy helmet is tests like some of the best. So I just knew the bike was gonna be fucking a ripper. So that's kind of where I put my eggs, and I think I probably rode hard enough to where I lost a couple minutes on the run. So I was unable to pull back a few positions and I was actually pretty pissed the day after the race, when I realized when Justin Metzler passed me in the last, I think mile, mile and a half, I mean, we were, it was the downhill portion and we were both just grinding her out, trying to get it. And he's done this. He's always outrun me a little bit. Um, But fucker got me in the last couple or last mile and took the last 70.3 world's, Spot, so I was like hating myself and him for a day. No apparent reason, Justin, he's, he's a great guy, but I was just like super miffed at myself for letting that happen. But, anyways, I got three more chances to get a world slot, which I'm gonna go for. But overall, man, like being even nine minutes off um, the winning time with a subpar run, considering what I did at Galveston, like I'm pumped, man. It's more pumped for Jackson to see him fight back and we got to race and ride together for a bit and that oh, that's always fun um so yeah my day was pretty good on a home course yeah man you're knocking on the door for that world slot it just seems like you just missed it in texas you just missed it there You,
0: gotta-
2: <laughs> but i did move into i don't know i guess what 85th in the world rankings after these three good races and jack's up to 28th now so i mean we got some good movement in the in the rankings, at least, even if we don't completely freaking like them.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's uh, it's pretty nuts to be able to move up freaking thirty three spots in one in one race, but
2: um, that's that's also why the points maybe are a little bit
1: fucked. <laughs> yeah, I mean. I guess they're only counting two races right now. So when you boot off a 71 and you're placing with a 94, it makes sense. But yeah, it's just, yeah. I mean, it should have been worth a decent amount of points because it was a fifth place at North American champs, not because of whatever the time was, but absolutely. Uh, I mean, now I'm in a spot where I'm within definitely within reasonable range for getting into Collins cup. So um, that'll be the freaking major goal of my next race block um trying to get at least one good result where it works out to be like you know at least minimum of 85 points and I'll have a decent shot so I'm hopefully more hopefully kind of up to 90 would be really good so um we'll see what shakes out there and what races happen I'm not super confident in the Canadian one so I'm thinking it'll probably be Des Moines Rev three Williamsburg and, uh, Ecuador, which should be on all of our lists. Hopefully.
2: Yeah. We're uh, going to have a good team race in Ecuador. That's the plan. We're just trying to coordinate the logistics and make sure that race is happening. Up, Apparently Flock said that there's some governmental changes happening within the country. So I can't, I mean, I, they sent me a registration link, but it wasn't operational and they haven't gotten back to me. So I think there's just some funkiness going on. However, should be super fun to get out there. I think even Garrick might even come out, which is going to be awesome for sure, man. I got the same race plan as Jack because he seems to copy me. But wait, we're gonna go, <laughs> we're all going to Des Moines, I believe so. We need to oh, set yeah. up, figure out a comms,
0: man. Yeah, so in Ecuador, though, we have to be sure that if of the three of us, Jack is not the one that wins because if he wins that race, it's gonna get canceled. Oh, yeah <laughs>
2: you're not winning that bastard.
1: Friggin Nick and Garrick are gonna box me on the swim and just drown me and find I think a way I'm
2: to- gonna I think I'm gonna put vodka in your tires instead of sealant. <laughs> just lit, full of liquor. Oh, God. I think I'm just going to take your chain, remove your chain and transition. <laughs> like, God, what God. if you showed up and you just went to go, you did a flying mount and you started pedaling and there was no chain. <laughs> <laughs> Not even a chance at moving. Yeah, I was just, couldn't control my cadence, my power fell off. <laughs> go, go, gadget, invisible chain. <sighs>
0: That's hilarious.
2: Um, so, yeah. And then it's some other cool announcements coming up. Um, we have... You know, kind of dabbled around with this partnership with the the Speed Hound, but they've they're coming on board more and more, and they're giving us a lot of love and support. So we're keen to to really throw them, you know, all the all the love we can. So they're going to put up a entire recovery pump leg boot system uh, for our Patreon for the month of whatever this month is coming up. <laughs> what month? April, May? We we'll call it. We're calling it May. It's May. <laughs> okay, okay, so That's huge. So you're going to get, so there's probably what, like 20 Patreons now or less, maybe. There's about a dozen right now, I think. So that's like (laughs) pretty good odds that you're going to have a good chance. If you end up signing up in the next, we're not going to make the drawing until the end of May, just so you know, we'll, we'll release that in the final episode of May of the winter. And we'll also probably kick in a couple other freebies that were, uh, have yet to be disclosed, but for now, just know you're going to get a free recovery boot system from the speed hound. So super pumped on that.
1: Yeah, that's a freaking awesome prize. And you guys know how expensive freaking norm attack and recovery pump and whatever those other brands are. Speed hound is just as good, if not better than the best ones I've ever used. I've used them before all my, the last few races and they've just been really great for just getting that last bits of fatigue out um they work really well they're fast they don't take forever to pump up and i mean i haven't used a huge number of different boots so i only have a few to compare with but what do you think nick you've probably used a few more brands than me as they compare to like norma or some of those other brands
2: well i'll tell you what i, I used to back in the day before these you used to put on you know uh water wings on each you know, like six pairs of water wings on your legs and you would pump them up individually with a hand pump and then you would deflate <laughs> them sequentially with a hand pump as well. So it'd take about 30 minutes just to get one sequence of blood flow <laughs> up your legs. <laughs> now, now tell you what, man. Well, yeah, I mean, I have used Norma many times and recovery pump and air, air max wave flow tech, whatever they are. <laughs> but the, the problem is man, and this is why we've, love speed hound so much is they've just exponentially outpriced everybody for really technology that is the same like you can patent a waveform of how it puts pressure down and everything like that but it's still designed to do the same thing over and over which is just increased blood flow or the flushing of blood to and from the legs over and over and over and you can't freaking you can't make that happen any faster than just like what it's already doing and every company has the same but speed hounds pricing is just so good they're not trying to rip you off and that's why we're so down to pump them up literally <laughs> yeah
0: and with these recovery products coming on the market i know there was a few of the boots i've tried that aren't the normatex and they're like they say they come in and they're cheaper than the normatex but then the quality of the actual boots and the fabric that they use is awful and it always yeah. breaks but that's something that like you could easily with the the um Speed
2: hounds, you can go toe to toe with the Normatex.
0: Same
2: boots. I like the pants, or I mean the shorts, like the shorts that go up your low back and your glutes. Like that's what I'm a, a huge fan of those because we just spend so much time thrashing our lower backs and our hip flexors that I found that, that added that added attachment has made huge value. So that's what you can win if you become part of the Patreon, a brand new, awesome speed hound recovery system with the full boots. Um and Yeah, so Jack, who we have on as a guest today? Well,
1: before I reveal the guest, one quick more thing that uh, Speedhound has promised us. Also, if you sign up for Patreon and you don't win the boots, which is going to be the case for most of you guys, you're still going to get a sweet discount on the boots. So everybody's going to get a discount. I don't remember the exact percentage, but we're going to give you what we can, and so everybody can take advantage. And now for the guest... We have a friend of mine from the Guelph area. Her name is Alex Coates, and she is an incredible researcher when it comes to athletics and specifically high performance or elite athletes, or not even necessarily elite or high performance athletes, but people who are putting their bodies through a lot of stress. And in this particular talk, we're going to chat about some of her research with ultra runners, with Uh, Things that can determine your performance in ultra running like is your VO2 max going to predict how well you do a a number of other factors which they recorded in actual races in Ontario for ultra distance events so really cool research she has so many publications that it's hard to even pick what to talk about but we're going to go into a lot of these really cool topics and learn a lot about what it is that you know determines how well we're going to do in a long distance event as well as different things about energy availability we go into a bunch of different topics so just hang on if you're into the science aspect of things you're going to like this one
0: cool and before we roll into that i just want to let you guys know we have 10 patrons so you have a one in 10 chance right now of winning if
2: you're a patron (laughs) uh, which is awesome odds Yeah, so you should probably just go ahead and hop on that. Garrick, how can they sign up as a patron? You can click the link in the show notes, and then you can come on at any
0: level, whatever you feel like giving. You know, it goes back to us. It's freaking awesome seeing all these people supporting us. It feels good, and it helps us justify to our significant others what we're doing
1: at 930 at night
0: on our computers on Zoom. (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah we're just like hey you know what i'm making dozens and dozens of dollars a year
2: doing this it is just (laughs) a huge massive thing for us and after taxes it's probably (laughs) six (laughs) dollars yeah but But we love it it. that's why we do it it's not about the moolah clearly our profession has taught us that no but
0: if you do want to support us and the team as well You can also go into the show notes and check out our team store that has pretty much everything that we use uh, and that we fully back for our products. So check that out. And that full disclosure does give us a small kickback and helps us. So that's why we really like it when you purchase from that store, as opposed to straight from our supplier.
2: And I think I'm going to have added onto the store back massage from Jackson after your next 70.3 that he's also attending
1: right so that'll be 600. I mean let's be honest I'd probably do that for about th- three bucks
2: so <laughs> <laughs> three bucks Canadian <laughs> Oh, for the happy ending <laughs> oh no, why'd you gotta go there with the alright let's roll into this interview
1: here Hi. we are me and Alex Coates talking about a bunch of sciencey stuff we're all into it All right, so we're here with Alex Coates. Thanks so much for joining me, Alex.
3: Thank you for having me. This is fun.
1: So I said, I, I guess I said we're here with Alex Coates, which just me. Um, we just did 7.3 <laughs> Galveston yesterday and Nick and Garrick are both still traveling. So just me for the interview today, but I'm super excited to have you on, Alex. We've got, I've got a lot of questions for you, um, but just before we get into it, um alex has done a ton of research and we're going to focus a lot on her research especially in her research with ultra running Um, but before that alex was a professional triathlete she was canadian national champion Um, she's also a coach so i just want to hear from you alex how did you get into like triathlon and elite triathlon and how did you kind of get through to the point where you're now into full-time kind of
3: research good question um I, I think I followed that kind of pathway where when you start young, it just funnels you into elite triathlon. So I started, you know, with the Kids of Steel in Canada, Kids of Steel Triathlons, and um, I loved them. And actually, like I guess a funny anecdote. So I was a swimmer. I started out as a swimmer, but I was always doing the little Kids of Steel Triathlons. And then when I was 11, um, I raced the Calgary Kids of Steel Triathlon and through roll down, I qualified for the summer games, the Alberta summer games, right on my mountain bike. And to me, the Alberta summer games was like the Olympics, like I thought it was the biggest thing on the planet. And so I borrowed like an old 10 speed with like down tube shifting. I was 11 years old. And I was so nervous before the race that I was I couldn't stop crying. Like it was this, it was this huge thing in my mind. And then in the end, I ended up winning. The race and from that point forward, I was like, Yeah, triathlon is my sport. <laughs> so, that I think, like, ever since then, I knew I wanted to do triathlon. Um, but I still stuck with swimming until the end of grade 12 and then moved out to Victoria to train with the National Triathlon Center. And it was just kind of like this organic you know, you race kids, deal, and then you race junior elite, and then you race U23 elite, and then you race elite, elite, and then you know, it's all just Olympic distance and sprint distance racing. And yeah, that was my life for my whole life, I think.
1: Yeah, cool. Well, I mean, that's a really cool story about how you won that uh, Alberta Summer Games. And I actually did stuff on like a down tube shifting road bike that used to be my mom's when I was like 10. Yeah.
3: So,
1: <laughs> kind of same. Yeah. thing. <laughs> it's I, awful. Was, when that, you look
3: that, back, awful. you're like, yeah <laughs> you look back you're like that's kind of dangerous like kids don't know how to keep their head up at the best of times and <laughs> but that's okay
1: awesome so you eventually moved to Guelph and um, you started you trained here as an elite for I think it was a couple of years so how did you decide to move to Guelph and then I know a lot was changing that time and you were getting more into kind of masters and with, uh, with school. So talk about when you moved to Guelph and how you decided to kind of move on from elite racing.
3: Yeah. So I, I moved from Victoria to Guelph when I finished my undergrad and it was kind of like post, well, post, um, London Olympics, I guess They was just kind of like the standard, implosion of whatever program led into that Olympic year. And I think that's normal for any program, but like, you know, you go into it, everyone puts everything into it and then it just explodes after the Olympics. So there was kind of, um, just kind of lack of training environment out in Victoria. And I knew I really wanted to work with Craig Taylor out here in Guelph. So moved out to Guelph when I finished my undergrad with the purpose of just training solely for triathlon, just kind of going all in for the first time in my life. And, um, it was really great. Like I loved it. And I also got the best results of my career, which is exactly what you want. Right. When you finally kind of go all in, you want to have good results. And I wasn't even like perfect. I was injured on the run for most of that year, but just having consistent training and the other sports allowed me to race, you know, my best. So that was the year that I won nationals and I had a good world cup races and stuff. So I'm happy with that um, and but by the end of that year so I had only done that for like one full year and then I found out that I got this pretty like high level master's funding um, so most people apply for their master's funding um, not until they're already in their master's but I had applied beforehand just because I kind of knew about it and I knew I wanted to do my master's at some point but I didn't really think I would get it And I ended up getting it. And so then it was this decision of whether or not I continue with, you know, full time racing, or if I want to start school as well. And because it was kind of like this opportunity of, I don't know, I was scared I would never get that funding again. And so I decided to to, like try and do both, (laughs) which of course went terribly, Um, but I did do both. I did my masters and I trained still with Craig's group. So it was kind of like the national triathlon center at that point in time. I did that um, all the way up until June of that year of the second year, but um, yeah, no, it was going awful. It was going awful by like January of that year. And then I just kept trying and trying and trying. I couldn't quit because it's very, very, very hard to quit something you've done your whole life. but then finally it was just like this isn't working and i know that my passion i mean i know that i have a life in like research in academia i really loved it so um yeah that was how i kind of stepped away and honestly i think it still takes like it took me like two years to kind of get over it to like break up from triathlon entirely but um yeah but now here i am and i'm happy i'm in my final year of phd now so yeah
1: oh yeah i remember that time i was that was kind of earlier when i was just starting out into looking into elite stuff and i Mm -hmm. just remember you being like just absolutely always in a rush and i didn't really know but you were just you were at the pool in the water like hard swim for 45 minutes leave like go do your research and and i just in my in my mind i was like how is this even possible like i'm an undergrad like i
3: thank you for bringing that up because I feel like most people like only the people who witnessed it really like can understand how hard it was it was like every minute of every day was scheduled and scheduled but like to the point where you know like as an elite athlete you have to be recovered for your workouts right so it was like but I, I mean I wasn't recovered but it was like swim you know on the pool deck at seven or whatever and then right after the swim rush to the lab, labs, you know, until like 10 or something and then rush back and do weights and then rush out and go back to the lab and then, you know, try and get enough food in, which I'm sure I wasn't doing and then get to the track for X time and then go home and like do all this extra work and then try to get to bed on time and like, literally every minute of my life I had like I had a, a list of like minutes of what I was doing. It was stupid. It was like the worst way to live. So yeah
1: (laughs) that's the kind of thing where um, everybody's there sometimes like for a day or you know a couple days here and there or a week or whatever and Mm -hmm. it's sustainable for literally that amount of time like a few days and then it's like you need a day to not do that so I think nobody would have been able to sustain that so I think you definitely made the right call um, yeah the research Uh, but I mean the other part of me wonders like there's gotta be times where you wonder if you should have stuck with triathlon instead of doing the research. And like, how do you, like, obviously you're in a great spot and I, I really think you made the right choice, but how did you decide like, okay, I'm okay with, you know, having the national champion and done really well in triathlon and, you know, I'm good with that. And now I'm ready to move on. And you were only in your mid twenties, I think at the time, maybe late twenties, like.
3: Yeah. 25 when I quit, I think. yeah yeah Yeah. it was hard um i feel like i feel like nobody's like super content when they retire like i mean there's sure like some people are going to be more content than others if you have like an olympic gold medal or world champion medal or whatever then i'm sure that like in your mind is better but i also think everyone thinks that they have more in them and they never quite reach their full potential so i think that's at least a common feature and then for me, like Mm -hmm. my goal was Rio Olympics. And then I think by choosing to start the masters, I basically kind of knew that I was giving up on that goal. At that point in time, like it was a year out, but I kind of, I knew that it wasn't going to be possible to do both, but I still was like, you know, unable to quit. But I think by just kind of giving up that goal, then it was like, okay, well, I know I don't want to do another like quad. And Um, I also was like I don't think like so the reason why my goal was Rio so I was never like you know the top in Canada even though I won nationals there was you know three or four girls that were stronger than me but the the thing is that they're never healthy so I won nationals based off of I think my health and then um, yeah some girls didn't race nationals that year even though they were supposed to because of their health you know they're overtrained or they have reds or whatever and so Even though I was technically the fastest in Canada that year, they didn't even bring me to worlds because I didn't have like the creds that they wanted, even though I was the fastest in Canada and I was the healthiest in Canada. So it's frustrating, but it's also like I know even if I had performed my best, I don't think they would have taken me to the Olympics. Like it's just kind of like I was too far down their list of people they wanted to take. Um, And I get it, like, you know, I didn't have the resume that you know, Joanna Brown or Sarah Ann or, you know, Paula Finley or any of these girls, like they have these resumes that I don't have. And so I totally get it. But um, I think that's partially why it wasn't so bad for me to step away. Cause I was like, even if I had raced my very best ever, I don't think I would have gotten to go. So, yeah. yeah.
1: Cool. Well, that's really uh, good perspective and good to hear. Um, so then you, so you move full time to research and now and you got your that was your master's funding now you have your master's and you're working Mm -hmm. on your PhD now and you're already kind of well on your way to getting that so um, there's a lot to to potentially dig into there but if you can just kind of touch on some of the things you've researched and then we'll you'll just like tell me what it was and then I'll be like okay let's talk about that one or because you have too many here for like 10 hours.
3: (laughs) I'll start I'll start from the start and then we can see what yeah you're interested in so my master's research was all on overtraining and overreaching um which is definitely gonna still talk about kind this. of my passion just
0: saying. yeah
3: <laughs> it's kind of my passion like I just I don't know there's something about overtraining and overreaching that I really enjoy learning about um maybe because there's just like a lot of things that we don't know about it um and there's a lot of controversy which I'm okay with I guess um so yeah, my master's on overreaching, and we were looking at primarily what are the kind of cardiovascular alterations that happen with overreaching, but we did get some different studies out of it. So we got like some heart rate variability stuff. And like, um, I don't know, we sh- we showed that there was a decrease in blood being pumped out of your heart uh, during heart exercise when you're overreached. And we think that it's due to like less contraction of the heart. Um, which is kind of interesting, like your heart is tired, maybe, maybe your heart is tired when you're overreached. And like, that's kind of cool. I don't know. I think it's cool. Yeah, um,
1: that's really cool. Because I mean, it makes complete sense, because your heart is just another muscle. Uh, yeah, totally different muscle than the rest. But it makes a lot of sense. And it kind of seems weird, because your heart pumps nonstop for your entire life. It doesn't get tired, <laughs> no. but it pumps 60 beats a minute, most of the time, not like 100 mm-hmm. hours or whatever. So yeah, um mm-hmm. that's kind of
3: cool yeah and there's lots of mechanisms for it too so like um this is part of my phd actually my whole phd is all centered around what we call exercise induced cardiac fatigue now they've never shown exercise induced cardiac fatigue with overtraining because no one's done that specific study that's like maybe my last study of my phd will be that one um but but yeah basically like they show um I don't know if this is gonna to be too technical, but de- uh decreased sensitivity to like norepinephrine. So you, your heart, like you know, it's not responding to the same stress hormones, and so then it just doesn't contract as hard. Um, and there's all like I mean there's a whole bunch of different mechanisms, but pretty strong evidence for literally, yeah, your heart got tired. And just like the rest of your muscles in your body are tired, your heart's also tired with overtraining, which I think is kind of cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. And obviously that, you know, totally makes sense with, you know, why do we rest going into a race? Well, you don't want your muscles to be sore, but also you need to not have fatigue and everything. And obviously if your heart's yeah, fatigued yeah. and not responding well, you're not going to race well. And I think everybody's probably been there um, mm-hmm. and in their training. And, especially.
3: Sorry. And one thing we find too, with overtraining, overreaching, and I, I like, I like this as a marker because it's like pretty easy for everyone to get behind is you have this suppressed um heart rate during exercise so and especially at the higher intensities although you should see it at like some max but um if you're at like 80% of your heart rate max which isn't that high for an elite athlete right like so 80% for me is only 160 or 150 beats per minute or something so no, know it's 160 beats per minute um I think so it's like not that high I totally can work there at any given point in time but at that level you'll have to either work harder to get your heart rate there or if you have like a unknown let's say power output that elicits that heart rate your heart rate will be down by about 10 beats and it's interesting because it's like a consistent finding across all the literature it seems to work so like if you feel like you can't get your heart rate up if that's like something that you feel you're like I just can't push I can't get my heart rate up it means that you are, yeah, overtrained. you need to take a couple days. So yeah, going into races, you need to do the taper.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's really good advice. Because I feel like that's something that nobody knows. Like, honestly, I didn't even know that, like, I mm-hmm. could, I can tell when I'm tired, but I don't really monitor my heart rate that much. Um, but that's one reason mm-hmm. to do it. Because I mean, obviously, there's different things that can affect your heart rate. Like, caffeine or heat or different things but um, in any given scenario yeah that's so useful for an athlete to know and it's you know it kind of gives a little bit of a, an objective thing like well you know maybe I'm feeling fine and I was just being lazy or no you're tired you need to rest yeah. and that's sometimes the hardest thing to tell an exactly. athlete
3: exactly <laughs> exactly and I find like athletes will often say oh I felt like I couldn't push but then they'll say I think it was mental and I'm like Mm, is it like usually it's not like I feel like if you are uh you know high performance athlete or not, like you know you're used to training hard and you feel like you can't push yourself I think that's because you're tired you know and like that feeling of not being able to push goes along with not being able to increase your heart rate the same way not being able to create as much lactate which means like you don't get those sensations of being able to push and you're going slower and so yeah, I don't think, I think it's less of this like mental and it's more physical than you think, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I hear you. And, uh, this is something that anyone listening can relate to, I'm sure because everyone's either an athlete or was an athlete or is a coach. So, um, that's really cool. So that's what you learned in your overtraining anything else. Cause I know like over these years, I've spoken with you many different times about, um, you know training and kind of nutrition stuff to talk about like because you have some some experience there um is there any other kind of things that you even if it wasn't directly what you researched just in what you've learned over the years that can really kind of indicate when someone might be fatigued and like what to look out for
3: yeah so there's this like balance between like overtraining-related symptoms and REDS-related symptoms, so relative energy deficiency in sport. Um, And they come kind of hand-in-hand simply because um, when you're training harder, it's harder to get in enough calories, right? Or you're burning more calories, and so you think you're taking in enough, but you just aren't. Um, And so... I do believe that there's this distinction between overreaching symptoms and red symptoms. I think the reds ones show up a lot later. Um, with overreaching, you can get overreached in like a week or two. And like, if you have low energy availability for a week or two, you'll you you'll be fine. And if anything, you might even do better because maybe you'll lose like a pound or something. <laughs> so like, I do think they're, they are separate, um, but the problem is you can't completely distinguish between the two because with reds um, and energy deficiency and stuff, that's going to like, that's going to be kind of like your long-term issue that's a bit harder to resolve because it causes like more hormonal imbalances, more, um, I mean, it can cause like stress fractures, right? So um, I guess like where I'm going with this is from an overtraining and overreaching perspective, you, you have some kind of fun indicators, which is like decreased heart rate during exercise, decreased lactate during exercise, much like lower mood states. You just, you know, don't want to train. Motivation's low when you're really, really grumpy. You know, it's just like when you feel like you're in a hole, that's likely overtraining. Obviously, you can support yourself by eating more and that'll help with recovery. Um, But like sometimes you just need to take a day or two off. And if you can take a day or two off early so before you start seeing any any signs of underperformance that's when you benefit more from your training if you're starting to see underperformance then that means you've almost gone too far and chances are you're not going to um adapt as well to the training you're not going to have as much of a super compensation so i guess like take home number one is like I always say, and Craig Taylor used to say this too, like don't dig holes. You don't need to put yourself into this dark place to see an improvement in performance and in fact like you shouldn't. Um, So that's like the overtraining side of it. And then on the like energy deficiency side of it, it's like make sure you're fueling enough and um, you if you are in low energy availability for a long period of time, you'll start to see things in the blood, which I think you've talked about on a previous podcast, so I don't need to go into it, but it's like those ones, you're going to start seeing kind of the more chronic long-term symptoms of not taking enough calories. Um, and that, you know, it can look like overtraining, but a lot of the time it's like, you're just going to need to take some time off, but also just increase your your energy intake and then over time it'll resolve.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's. That's really great advice. So, um just touching a little bit on some of those um blood markers. We did touch on this in a previous episode, but um are there any anything in that that you can see with overtraining? Cuz I know there's there's certain things like that can mark um that can detect muscle damage and that's like a very acute marker, I would think. That's creatine mm-hmm. kinase. So if you just yeah. do a smashing hard workout and then the next morning you go in, you're going to have high creatine kinase. Um but yeah. then in terms of like testosterone or I'm, I'm thinking from a male perspective, like that's really all we look mm-hmm. at is testosterone in terms of hormones. Mm-hmm. Would that be down with red S and with overtraining or is it more one or the other?
3: Yeah. So in general, like as a general kind of thing with overtraining, we haven't found any blood markers that kind of coincide with overreaching per se. It seems to be like you you will see it more during exercise. So like maybe if you get epinephrine or norepinephrine or cortisol or something during exercise, then you'll see that difference, which like nobody can do, right? But um, researchers can do it. So that's when you see those differences in the blood. Um, So you don't usually see overtraining reflected in blood markers, which is why it's a little bit frustrating from a like athlete perspective, if they, you know, they feel awful, they're training terribly, they're performing terribly, they go to the doctor, you know, they think that, oh, it's for sure my testosterone's going to be low, like, you know, for sure, I'm going to have, you know, high cortisol or whatever. And then everything looks fine. And then they're like, or, you know, for sure, my iron's low, and then everything looks fine. And then it's like, well, now what, you know? Um, and so that's kind of a, a issue with overtraining and overreaching. And then, whereas with reds, you will you'll see like decreased testosterone for girls. You'll see decreased estrogen, progest- progesterone. You'll see increased cortisol. You'll see decreased leptin. You'll see decreased IGF one. So that's your insulin-like growth factor. So um, it's like an anabolic hormone helps you build muscle. Um, there's just kind of like a whole. Oh, you see decreased ferritin. There's like a whole kind of panel. And sure, maybe not all of them will be low, but um, you will see these abnormal blood test results, and that's usually driven by low, not enough calories, you know, in relation to the trading. Um, testosterone is like the one kind of exception. So it's kind of funny that that was your example because testosterone does decrease with training, it seems like, and decrease with low energy availability. But the thing is we can't really distinguish between training and overtraining with testosterone. It's just like in general, over time, it's decreased in guys who train for years and years. Um, So it's not like a good marker for overtraining per se, but it is kind of a good marker for if it's in the tank reds, if it's just kind of like sitting low, you might be okay. It's just kind of part of being an athlete. It seems like. Yeah. Current literature.
1: Cool. Yeah. It's really interesting because Um, I've like, I've gotten probably four on average blood tests every year for the last four years, let's say. Um, and the only correlation I've seen between how I feel in my training, like tired, like ready, need a break. And my blood data is, has been my testosterone. So, um, and it's kind of interesting because if I've gotten a test and it's below the, what the normal reference range is and it's never been way below, but there's been a couple times where it's been just below. And those are the times where I've been like, that makes sense. I'm so freaking tired right now. I just need a few days and then I'm back to normal. And, and, but, and then in the off season, it's always higher. And then it's always higher in the early season. Then it kind of trickles down throughout the year. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a game of like, okay, now I need to insert better rest blocks throughout the year so that I can keep it high. And, you know, Also, I think maybe keeping a little bit more weight on in the off season and like making an effort to do that might help. I I haven't, I don't know for sure because I haven't done that for enough years to get some data points, but I do know that for years and years, my weight was always the same throughout the whole year and never changed. And it was low. Like I was, you know, for me, I was, I started my pro career. I was like 145 pounds or less. Um, And then over the years, my weight trickled up and then um but it wouldn't it still wouldn't go up in the off season but then some uh, but towards the end of the year i would just get beat down and just september october november i would like always find myself in a hole and have to kind of try to crawl out of it if i wanted a late season race Mm -hmm. um but then this year and last year i actually got heavier in january like this year i got up to about 156 um and i'm not quite that heavy now but I, I feel like that has kind of given me a bet, better energy pool to work with and you know my blood my blood data has looked better so these are things I'm learning over time but point main point is for me it's actually helpful to have a scale because I need to know that I'm going up in weight in the off season because it's easy for me to just like oh I'm not hungry I'm not training like let's not eat that much and then I don't gain the weight and you I know for some people scales can be really triggering so it's kind of a personal thing but um is that something you've seen that you think yeah
3: I think you're right though I think Mm -hmm. sorry I keep cutting you off I do think that you're right that um just like not being afraid to kind of go into your season a little heavy but having that like Knowledge that you, by the time race season comes around, you're gonna be back at race weight. Like I feel like it's just kind of, like it just happens. I found that at least even in my own career, like sometimes I'd be a little worried in like the spring. I'd be like, I don't know if I'm gonna get there. And then race season come along, or I do my first race or something, and then mid race season I'm race weight same as always I think racing itself just like is so hard on your body you can't get enough calories in that you just lose a bunch of weight in a race and then you're there right so first race of season maybe don't make it your a race but um no yeah I think you're right I think that people like having those reserves those energy reserves and just having like the additional health that comes along with like an extra couple pounds but like not being just starving not like being in survival mode all the time, even if you don't notice a difference, like it makes a difference. And then like for people who are afraid of the fat, you could almost like challenge yourself. Okay. in off season, like, why don't you just try and build up as much muscle as you can? Maybe like, let's see what happens. You know, that gives you a couple extra pounds and just like, see what happens if you like bulk, but like try to make it all muscle. And then you're definitely not going to get injured when you start running. Cause it's functional mass. Right. Yeah. And, I don't know, then you also needed to have taken those additional calories in to gain the muscle. And so um, yeah, I think a lot of it it comes down to just not being so afraid or not being so tied to one number.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, I think some of this kind of the conversation's changing from like what it used to be of like, oh, light means fast no matter what, and like mm-hmm. gotta be light and but I've gotten better over the years and I've gotten heavier. So I I, I think there's a lot, there's just as many counterexamples as there are examples of being lighter is better. So um, that's something that everybody needs to know, I think, because, you know, Mm -hmm. it's hard to get point across.
3: And then one thing that I've been talking about in like grads talks recently is this like lack of understanding of the difference between like a normal male progression and a normal female progression in terms of like, like weight gain, I guess. And that, like, especially when you start sport young, you're kind of pushing back um, the inevitable weight gain that you would get just, you know, by being a woman and gaining fat, like sometimes like 20% body fat from when you're a kid to when you're an adult, but it's like fat that's going to come, you know, it's in your boobs and in your hips. It's for making babies. Right. And we don't acknowledge that that's part of an, a woman's like natural physiology. And so then through sport, when they're used to being really skinny, like you're kind of delaying that puberty, but it's like, it's not puberty. Oops, sorry. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, let's say, um, yeah, you have a, a young girl and she goes through puberty in the sense of she starts getting her period at like a relatively young age, like normal age, maybe like. 14 or whatever 13 14 kind of thing um, so she theoretically has gone through puberty but it unlike you know a peer who then gains a bunch of weight and goes through kind of all of these body changes that would then make her a woman a training girl doesn't right you're you're pushing back that fat gain and then what happens is so they stay skinny for a really long time they perform really well because they have you know optimal strike to weight ratio. Like, you know, they also had some of the adaptations that come along with puberty in terms of like increased hemoglobin mass and heart mass and lung volume and everything. So they're like, it's like the best of both worlds. It's like you get to be super fit and you're super skinny. But then what happens is inevitably you're going to, the fat is going to catch up to you. It's going to happen. And then all that happens is it starts coming on later and then women start you know crashing and burning by the time they're like 19 20 21 because they're training at the super elite level they're racing at a super elite level then all of a sudden they gain all this fat mass their body doesn't know what to do with the extra mass they are trying to fight it so they you know don't eat enough and it's this perfect storm of like reds and a misunderstanding of the way women are supposed to develop and all of that, and I think this would all, all just be solved if we just you know, really tried to get young girls to gain as much weight as possible. <laughs> not as much weight as possible, but like try to go through natural puberty and not train so hard when they're young because you get through that and then you can then work with the new body. Um, and then like same with guys in a, in a different sense, like guys don't have to go through that big fat mass gain, but they are gonna gain weight in terms of muscle mass and everything. And so it's just like accepting that the weight gain is normal and part of life and part of all of our maturation. And it's just like, yeah. And then it's, it's not that lighter is faster, especially when we're talking in the fourth like a, a journey. Um, if you're talking about, I think maybe the lighter faster really, I mean, it really gets reinforced when you have people coming into the sport later in life and then they start losing a bunch of weight and they get a lot faster and they're like, oh yeah you know it works but it's not healthy when you think about it in terms of like an athlete who's already really skinny or a young athlete who's developing
1: yeah yeah that really um touches on kind of what we talked about with dave hopton when he talked about coaching a lot of junior athletes is it's not necessarily the best to just push them so hard from a young age and keeping them more at a recreational or fun level for longer is probably better um in terms of long-term yeah, development and that's a and then it becomes it kind of it kind of becomes this t- tough question because if if someone's 12 years old and they're doing well it's like well maybe they don't even want to do this for older in life and then they never get the chance so it's like it's it's a really difficult yeah dilemma but i think for sure just people understanding that yeah women are supposed to gain fat mass when they're in their teen years and yeah know that's normal and it's then, gonna happen yeah and then and like you said even on the men's side like especially when you look at elite racing you're not exactly seeing a bunch of guys who are like super built and giant like big muscular guys they're all re- typically really lean and you know what people call skinnier and that you know if somebody's mm-hmm. going through puberty if they're building all this muscle mass like that can kind of go against what they think so um really good yes, points. exactly um so so that's really cool, all that stuff you researched and like huge wealth of knowledge there. And then now, so now you're looking more in with your research in adults. Um, and mm-hmm. is that correct? And, and also adults who do ultra running. Um, so that's yeah. a different thing, but it's along the same lines of o- overtraining or acute overtraining. Because if you go and run 100 miles, I think anybody would be considered overreached or whatever after that. Uh, so talk about some of that stuff that you looked at in ultra running Mm
3: -hmm. yeah so the ultra running idea started based off of what we talked about which is the cardiac fatigue and so all this like cardiac fatigue literature started um we know we started noticing exercise induced cardiac fatigue from like marathons and ultra marathons um So I wanted to look at it because we have this super cool race out here called the Sulphur Springs Ultramarathon, and they do different distances of races as loops of the same course. So um, they have a 25k race, a 50k race, an 80k race, and a 161 kilometer race. And it's all like 20 kilometer loops on the same course, which is like very, very unique. You don't find that you know anywhere else around the world and so we realized we had this opportunity to look at like this dose response like you know how bad is a 25k race for your body compared to a 50 compared to an 80 compared to 160 and um so yeah it started mostly we wanted to look at this cardiac fatigue stuff and we wanted to look at like what happens to your arteries and like how they work i guess after these long distance races um, but then we also because we had done like VO2 max testing on the athletes before we did running economy testing on the athletes before the race. Um, We had hydration data. We had like all this health data, like heart rate variability and blood pressure and um, yeah. And then like training volumes and stuff. So we had all this data on them. So then we decided, okay, we're gonna see if any of this data can predict performance across the various distances of ultramarathon races Um, and, so almost like that whole kind of paper, that research paper was just a byproduct of the, our other papers, which were on the cardiac fatigue and the vascular stuff. Um, but yeah, we basically ended up finding that like following ultra-marathon races of 50, 80, and 160k, we wanted to see like what would predict performance. And we found that 50k racing is very similar to marathon in terms of what predicts performance, which is basically like you know, VO2 max, if you're fitter, you'll run faster, um, and health. So like if you have lower blood pressure and, and like better heart rate variability and stuff that, you know, ties into fitness, which means that you'll probably perform better, um, dehydration actually. So like we find with marathons, marathon runners who almost become more dehydrated across the race usually end up doing better, but like it's to a degree. So if you lose two to 3% of your body mass in water, often it was means you'll actually do better and we found that in the 50k. um, What else? Basically like everything that you'd expect predicted performance in the 50k similar to a marathon but in the 80k the only thing that predicted performance out of all these variables we looked at was vo2 max or or running speed at vo2 max which is like pretty much the same thing Um, and then nothing predicted performance in 160k even though we had like you know this whole host of measures which basically goes to tell you that like 160k is just a you know survival of the fittest kind of race but yeah it was it was an interesting kind of side study there that we did
1: wow that's really really cool i can't even imagine i mean nobody would have predicted that i think thinking about it off of like on a whim would have been like, Oh, you know, the longer it gets, the more important fitness is going to be. But when you've actually done some long distance stuff, it, it does kind of make sense that it becomes more mind over matter because if for 160 K, if you're running at, like, if you're walking at like, or walk running at like eight minute K's, that's pretty fast. And you don't need a lot of VO2 max to be able to do that. So um, yeah, that's, that's really, really cool. Um what did you find yeah. in the actual kind of what happens with the heart in, in after those events mm-hmm. you know how does that yeah. kind of affect the body
3: So we found um kind of weird so following the so we were, we looked at this one measure called so this is of the vascular so the arteries and we looked at this one measure called flow mediated dilation which is a measure to see how much your arteries can dilate after a known stimulus and um, the more they can dilate the healthier your arteries are in general and we found that after the 50k that dilation was impaired but after the 80k and the 160k it wasn't and so like that's kind of confusing because you'd expect it to get worse the longer you go same sort of thing Um, but we decided that it likely represents this kind of mix between intensity and duration so like you're going harder for a long period of time And so that probably drives these factors that cause reduced arterial function. Um, Now, whether or not this has any long-term implications, it's kind of iffy. Um, (laughs) uh, Like chances are, it probably doesn't. Like we know that we know that the fitter you are, the higher your VO two max is. Even like the most marathons you've done, you're gonna live the longest. So like. In the end, it doesn't really matter in terms of overall longevity, but we do see that with men runners, sometimes they do have like kind of worse artery health. And, you know, I guess it's that trade off it's like you're going to live longer, so maybe you don't need to worry about it, but (laughs) from a measurement standpoint, your arteries look like they're doing worse. Um, So that was interesting finding and then the heart stuff was cool because so. Previous work has basically said like the longer you go the worse your cardiac fatigue is going to be. But it's always a little bit tricky because you're looking at the heart so we use echocardiography so um, ultrasound of the heart and so you're looking at the heart before the race when people are at rest and then after the race but they're not really at rest anymore right because they're they come in they're like completely messed up you know some of them are like delusional (laughs) like one guy following the ultramarathon race was seeing cats like he was like where are all these cats coming from we're like "There's, there's no cats man like like they were messed up and so they're in there the heart rates are racing their blood pressure is super super low because it's just like dehydration and vasodilation and all this stuff and then you're looking at the heart and it's like not the same environment as it was before right like you're not looking at the heart at rest you're looking at the heart with less blood in it and it's beating way faster and so what we did to try and like kind of get around that a little bit was we raised people's feet up so feet up so that blood would return to the heart better. And so that kind of puts it at like, at least they have similar amount of blood in their heart as they did before the race. So then at least, then you can look at the heart's function with enough blood in it. So at least that's like held the same, I guess. And what we found, which was weird and against what all the other research has shown was that basically across every distance of race, people had the same amount of cardiac fatigue. which doesn't really make sense. And then um, if anything, it almost looked like there wasn't that much cardiac fatigue. But but when we looked at like those people who raced faster, so people who either their heart rates were higher um, for themselves. So we did do like individual heart rate zones and everything. And so people who were racing at a higher intensity for themselves, they had more cardiac fatigue and we saw like more cardiac fatigue um if you just had a higher racing heart rate overall so more in the 25k actually and so that's what we think is kind of like this blunting of the ability of the heart to contract and we think it's more now we think it's more to do with intensity than duration um so my next study that i haven't started yet we started and then got shut down with COVID, is really trying to get into this intensity thing and like maybe we've been looking we, we always look at duration but maybe we just weren't doing it right and now we really need to look at intensity and maybe that's all it is maybe intensity always drives cardiac fatigue and it's not really duration at all
1: yeah that's fascinating and there's you can always come up with reasons why something might be and i don't know why i always think that but
3: yeah i guess the
1: longer you go the closer it is getting to just sitting and not doing anything. Yeah. the longer you just go walking, the story, right? You're going, right yeah so anybody can go like i think I I don't think anybody would disagree that humans can walk a long time. And we've obviously Mm -hmm. do that over our evolution. And so the longer we go, probably the more similar that was um, to what we've done for probably millions of years, but
3: um, actually there's a super cool study. So I didn't do this study. This study was like a big study that just came out um, where they looked at Tarahumara runner hearts. So that's going to be like, I mean, obviously they're known as these, these runners but their hearts are like less like a runner's heart and more just like a hunter gatherer heart because like you said it's like you can go at a very slow intensity for a very long period of time so they looked at the tarahumara runner hearts and then they looked at like marathon like elite runner hearts and then they looked at um football player hearts and what they found was that yeah we're very well like evolutionarily suited for long slow endurance so like our hearts are really well adapted for that and then as you get up into like longer harder more intense running that's actually almost pushing it a bit like maybe we're not as well suited for that but we're more well suited for endurance sport than strength sport and then when you look at like the power sport stuff um that's actually like not what we're adapted for like you can you, your heart can adapt to it and it does adapt to it but it's like less beneficial for Longevity and health and life and cardiac function and all that, um, which I think is pretty cool. Like it's like exactly what you said. We're we our evolutionary history like sets us up to be these like long, slow endurance people.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we could get into that forever, but if you just look at humans as you know, fastest yeah. human sprinter ever is like not even top a thousand out of animals. Like animals other animals just destroy us we're we're horrible horrible sprinters and then
3: yeah but we're
1: the only we're the, <laughs> the only things that can sweat so we can cool ourselves yep and we can do that for a long time mm-hmm. and we can maintain a high percentage of our maximum speed relatively speaking for a very long time and that's what makes us unique mm-hmm. uh so interesting and that's Mm -hmm. and that's one and i mean all the sports we watch are like explosive but maybe they should be watching all the ultra marathons because that's what we're actually good at
3: (laughs) exactly exactly (laughs) so cool
1: so um i i just wanted to get one one uh, this might be more than one thing but with all the research you've done and Mm -hmm. all the things you've learned over your education and as an athlete and as a coach which we didn't even get into but we won't get into coaching too much Mm -hmm. today. (laughs) <laughs> um what would you say is like something or even a couple things that you really wish more athletes understood and think could help athletes with their ability in racing and just overall enjoyment of sport and endurance sport.
3: Mm very good question. Um I mean so one of them and I think um I mean I probably already said this in this conversation but like the benefits of recovery are so huge and I was even like we were I was talking about this this weekend with someone where it's like even if you're just thinking about it in terms of work so let's say you know it's so easy to fall into the trap of working every day Of your life like you know you work through the weekends just because there's something you have to do or whatever you work a couple hours here a couple hours there maybe you you just like really like what you're doing so you just kind of do it all the time but the like taking a step back and taking a day or two off and then having that like fire to get going again you you're so much more productive when you come back and you're so much more motivated when you come back if you took you like force yourself to take a break and it's the same for training so it's like your body responds so well to the training when you just like back off and give yourself a day and a two and then like let your mind be like oh my god I want to go like I'm ready to go I'm ready to like crush this track workout you know it's like the benefits of rest are so huge and yet it's so easy to just like train through right like it's so easy to just be like well I just want to do an easy you know, three workouts today, right? And, like, I'm not saying you can't do, like, some slow, easy spins or whatever here and there, but sometimes just, like, the mental recovery from taking a step back is more important than the physical recovery, and it's the same for off-season. So, like, people are afraid to take time off at off-season. It's, like, this is the one time of the year when you should, like I say to my athletes, you should get to the point where you, like, hate off-season. (laughs) like you just want to get back to training so badly because you hate not being able to do swimming biking and running or whatever your sport is right you hate that you can't do it then you know that you're ready to go back and then you have a whole year ahead of you to to dig deep and to train hard and so I don't know I think for me and like based off of like my life of not doing that and even now like I just went through this really really rough I don't know six months of school just so much work yeah so I just went into like this block of six months of really really hard work at school and like just never getting any time off and um, you know working through the weekends and everything and then coming out of it and being able to take like you know Saturday and Sunday off and I mean even then like there's this guilt associated in my mind with taking like a full break of anything you know if it it was a training like taking days off is awful for me mentally and then same with work it's like it's hard to take a day off but then the coming back like the Monday when you come back to work and you actually want to be there uh oh I'm scared you're frozen no I'm here here (laughs) um yeah coming back on okay good (laughs) coming back (laughs) on Monday is like the biggest game changer right and you're just like so much more ready to go and it's the same with training it's just like you know, give yourself a day, get hungry again, like allow yourself to be like, I hate not training today. um, But I know that when I come back on Monday, I'm going to have so much more energy. And I'm actually going to be able to get more out of my I'm going to be able to push harder, then you have to recover more. But like, the pushing harder is what then allows you to make those those gains, right? Just like doing this gray zone training all the time where you're like, in a hole, and you're just doing the same thing over and over again, and kind of like, Getting, you know, losing motivation, burning yourself out, like getting more and more tired. It's not really that helpful. It's like you want these like big spikes and then these like big recovery periods and then big spikes and then big recovery periods and like really try and push the level up. You know, I don't know. Do you feel like that's something that applies to your training?
1: Yeah. um, I think it's definitely something I really try to put into my training, probably more than the average. Um, pro just or average athlete, like a lot of pros do this, but I, I put basically uh, one way that I maintain this is that I do, I have two recovery days a week and, um, they're spaced (laughs) out by two or three days and they're really recovery days. Like I do not, I don't even know if I would be in zone one, when I do the training on those days, it would be like, very low heart rate. And I never run on those days. It's always just a swim or bike Sweet, really low. And I feel like Mm -hmm. it's, like you said, a lot mental because then it's okay. Yeah. I can push pretty hard these two or three days because then I get a really chill day. I can sleep in, I can do some other things, not focus too much on training. And it's just such a mental recharge. And sometimes during those days, I like, I feel like I'm not that tired, but it's like, okay, well, I'm going to just use this as motivation for tomorrow to really come back and crush it. So, um, that's the one thing. And then, like you yeah. said, like you said with the off seasons, like as time goes on, I just keep taking more and more down weeks or down like off season, low training, no training time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, yeah, the more you take off the better you are when you're training. So i really found that, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I yeah. mean, really awesome, awesome advice. It was super, super great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for dealing with my crappy internet.
3: Thanks for dealing with mine too. I think it's like the perfect storm of both of our internets not being great.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we got through it and hopefully Garrick didn't spend too, too long on the editing, but uh, mm-hmm. we will definitely have to have you on again sometime and we can you know, follow up next year or something and have a uh, totally different, things to talk about because you're going to have new research and you're <laughs> coaching and your come your return to elite racing someday maybe who knows <laughs>
3: <laughs> maybe like elite mountain bike racing although no i'm so bad at mountain bike never mind but I, I do love it i do love it
1: <laughs> great well thanks so much and uh have a good night
3: thank you
2: got ish to do flying through the sky in my parachute dancing on the couch like i'm tommy Cruise on a one-man mission trying to see it through